Um, we've got a couple weeks left in our series in Amos. And basically, one of the things that we've been seeing as sort of a theme in Amos is we've been seeing God's anger at injustice and sin and his patience running on parallel tracks. And you're kind of wondering throughout Amos which one is going to win out in the lives of the people of Israel. And we actually see something a little bit surprising in this passage. It's not a way that we normally think about God, but we see his patience come to an end. Now, you might have experienced this at some point in your life. I remember reading about a professor who's also a famous theologian by the name of R.C. Sproul, and he shares this story about his patience running to an end. And he was teaching a class, and throughout a semester, he had been kind of lax, as some professors are, letting his students turn in papers whenever they wanted to. And so they would turn in a paper three weeks late, and he wouldn't mark down, and he wouldn't mark down, and he wouldn't mark down, and he kept kind of threatening them and saying, eventually, you're going to get an F on the paper if you turn it in late. And they just kept doing it, kept kind of abusing and taking advantage of him. And so it was like the final paper, and he had said this the whole semester long, and he was warning them and warning them and saying, if you turn in your paper late, I'm going to give you an F. And like 40% of the class turned their paper in on time, the rest turned it in late, and sure enough, he gave everyone who turned it in late an F. And they came back and said, this is so unfair. And he responded, what's been unfair is the way that you've been treated all along. This is the only moment where I've been fair. And we see that moment in the book of Amos. We come face to face with this realization that although God is patient, eventually his patience runs out. We need that category in our brain. We can't be too simple when we think about God. And there's three reasons that we see in this passage for that. And the first one is that repentance is lacking. God's patience runs out because repentance is lacking. We're in Amos chapter 8, verses 1 through 4. This is what the Lord God showed me. Behold, a basket of summer fruit, And he said, Amos, what do you see? And I said, a basket of summer fruit. Then the Lord said to me, the end has come upon my people Israel. I will never again pass by them. The songs of the temple shall become wailings in that day, declares the Lord God. So many dead bodies. They are thrown everywhere. Silence. Hear this. You who trample on the needy and bring the poor of the land to an end, saying, when will the new moon be over that we may sell grain and the Sabbath that we may offer wheat for sale, that we may make the ephah small and the shekel great and deal deceitfully with false balances, that we may buy the poor for silver and the needy for a pair of sandals and sell the chaff of the wheat. So we've seen this before. In the book of Amos, we've seen God threatening locusts. We've seen him threatening fire. We've seen him saying that he's going to bring a plumb line throughout Israel and measure it up against their lives to see if their lives are upright. And now we see 
God showing his prophet Amos a basket of summer fruit. Now, I don't know about you, but when I think of a basket of summer fruit, I think about nothing threatening at all. It gives me happy feelings and happy thoughts. Isn't that what we're supposed to think? Like he's showing it to Amos, look, a a fruit basket. Everyone wants a fruit basket. And Amos immediately knows that something that seems innocent is actually a predictor of something awful. And and God sort of fills it in, in the context. He says a, a basket of summer fruit, and then he says the end will come. And so what we're supposed to picture here is Israel being like a basket of summer fruit in the sense that the fruit has been ripe for a really long time. And so if you sort of compare that to the people of Israel, what God is saying is, you have been inactive for so long, unwilling to respond to my word for so long, that you are like summer fruit in the sense that you have passed the point of just being ripe and you are becoming rotten. And the only thing to do with rotten fruit is to throw it out, is to get rid of it. It is no longer good for anything. And God has said, I have been patient. I have waited. I have warned you. And you have not moved. You haven't repented. And so my patience has run out. And God says, as a result of this, he changes from a metaphor to a bitter reality. He says, as a result of this, I will never pass by you. Now, to an Israelite, that would have rung in their ears. They would have thought of Moses and when God passed by him, hit him in the cleft of a rock, and he, he passed by him. They would have understood that this was the saving and intimate presence of God. God had been their friend. And God is saying, I am no longer going to be your friend, but I'm going to treat you as an enemy. Or maybe they would have thought when God passed by them at the Red Sea, or when he was in their presence in the pillar of cloud and the pillar of fire in the wilderness, for God to pass by them was for God to be with them. And God is saying, I'm not going to be with you anymore. I'm turning against you. And why would God do that? Because of the way that they were using religion as a cover-up for evil. And God paints the picture for them very vividly. He says that this is what's been in their mouths. When will the new moon be over? that we may sell grain, and the Sabbath, that we may offer wheat for sale. So here's what's happening in their church services. They're participating in worship. They're hearing the word of God taught. They're going through the motions. But all they're thinking about in the service is how they can make money. See, their God has not been the God of Israel. They've said that it was, They put on a public face to show that it was, but the reality is 
They loved money far more than they loved God. And they loved money to such an extent that they were mistreating people to continue to have more and more of it. And Amos again illustrates that at the end of verse 6. He says, here's their reasoning that we may buy the poor for silver and the needy for a pair of sandals and sell the chaff of the wheat. Here's the problem. They're businessmen, they're capitalists, and they're cheapskates. They're making money by exploiting the day laborers who are working for them. And God is saying, you're sitting at your church services, you're thinking, how can I make money? And you're making money by trampling on the poor. And when I tell you that it's wrong, nothing in your life changes. You have refused to repent, and I have totally lost my patience with you. You say, it's just good business. I say, it's unjust, and it's sin, and I will punish you. You know, this last week, I had the opportunity to meet with a businessman in the area, and he is just beginning to seek after the Lord. And he's kind of looking back at his growing up. He grew up in kind of a mainline church in rural Minnesota, and I was asking him why he got disconnected from the church. And he said, because the Christians that I knew were the most judgmental and hypocritical bunch of people in my life. And I think that this passage is for those of you who are wrestling with that kind of background in the church. And you need to see that God sees what you see and that God agrees with you. That God is not just a God who is saying, there's all these problems out in the world. God is a God who looks at his people. In that day, it was Israel. In our day, it's the church. He looks at the church, and he says, there are some real problems here. And the reality for us as New Testament people, in the second chapter of the book of Romans, it says that God's kindness, his grace, his patience, ought to lead us to examine our lives and respond by turning away from our sinful patterns and turning back to him. Or, according to Hebrews, this is what may happen. Hebrews chapter 12, verses 16 through 17, says this, See to it that no one is sexually immoral or unholy like Esau, who sold his birthright for a single meal. For you know that afterward, when he desired to inherit the blessing, he was rejected, for he found no chance to repent, though he sought it with tears. Here's a category we need, even as New Testament people, in our minds. If we harden our hearts, And day after day, week after week, month after month, year after year, hear the word of God, come to church, and refuse to repent, there may come a time where God's patience runs out on you, and although you want to repent, you are so entrenched in your sin 
that you will be unable to. And you will receive in yourself, according to Romans 1, the due penalty of your error. In other words, the judgment of God will come into your life in the form of absorbing the consequences for your own sin. And so today is the day for repentance. Not vain promises, not God, I promise that I'll do better next time, but a total turnaround. That's what repentance means. It means a complete change of direction. I'm walking in this direction. I am turning around and walking in that direction. I'm walking away from sin, and I am running toward the arms of Jesus. And this passage is here to warn us that the arms of Jesus will not always be open. Because if we decide that we don't want him, he will say, have it your way. What a warning. I hope that's a gut punch to you. It has been to me this week. So that's the first thing we see. God's patience runs out because repentance is lacking. The second thing we see is that God's patience runs out because pride is abundant. Look at verses 7 through 10. The Lord has sworn by the pride of Jacob, surely I will never forget any of their deeds. Shall not the land tremble on this account and everyone mourn who dwells in it and all of it rise like the Nile and be tossed about and sink again like the Nile of Egypt? On that day, declares the Lord God, I will make the sun go down at noon and darken the earth in broad daylight. I will turn your feasts into mourning and all your songs into lamentation. I will bring sackcloth on every waist and baldness on every head. I will make it like the morning for an only son and the end of it like a bitter day. So we have God here swearing by the pride of Jacob. Now, initially, what I thought that meant is that God was referring to himself as the pride of Jacob. But I did a little bit of digging into it, and God is actually not swearing by his own name, calling himself the pride of Jacob. He's swearing by the sin of the people Israel, and specifically the sin of pride. In other words, what God is saying is, you people are so well known for your self-deception and your independence from me that I can swear by your sinful attitude of pride. It's one of the most solid things in the universe. And I think about our own day And I think about the sin of pride. And I think about the sin of pride in my own life. And I think about how quickly I turn away from God and turn to other things. How easy it is to skip a morning devotion where I spend intimate time with God. How easy to neglect prayer. How easy to skip out on church and sleep through it. How easy to just get into the rhythms of life 
and enjoy food and drink and friendship and all of God's gifts without acknowledging or thanking him at all. I think it would be accurate to say that God today could swear by the sin of pride in his church. The question for us is, are our hearts broken? Are our hearts contrite before God? Are we like little kids who wake up each day, who are thankful that God's mercies are new every morning, that his faithfulness is great. And as a result of that, we run to him, not away from him. We run to him as a father and we say, thank you for welcoming me into your presence again today. I want to walk with you holding your hand all day today. Or are we saying, no, thank you. I don't need you. I'll be just fine on my own. Because if for long enough, God reaches his hand down to us as a father would to help his son cross the street, and we say, no, I don't want your hand. I don't need your hand. I can cross the street myself. If we do that long enough, day after day after day after day, God will say, okay, you can have it your way. And the result will be disastrous. God paints the picture for us of what it would be like in the lives of the Israelites and by extension, what it would be like in our lives. He says, I will make the sun go down at noon and darken the earth in broad daylight. I will turn your feasts into mourning and your songs into lamentation. I will bring sackcloth on every waist and baldness on every head. I will make it like mourning for an only son. What he's saying is you'll be walking around in broad daylight and there will be a darkness hovering over your life. Haven't we experienced this before? As we've walked away from God in, in disobedience, it's like you could be at a party you could be at the most fun event in the world and you're standing there and you feel like you're at a funeral because there is just this internal guilt and this mourning that you're going through. And it's like you are at your own son's funeral. Why? Not because your circumstances aren't good, but because God has offered you over and over again the chance to be obedient to him and to walk in the light with him, and to enjoy his presence. And over and over again, in your pride, you've said, no, thank you. You've turned away from him, and you've chosen your own path. And God has told you that that would lead to destruction. And eventually, he lets you go your own way. And then you begin to experience that destruction. And then, in your pride, you might even start to blame God. Why are you so distant from me? Why did you leave me hanging? Why aren't you good? And maybe this morning you need to, for the first time in a long time, realize that it's not his fault. It's your fault. He's offered you his grace over and over again, and you've turned away from it and you've said, no, 
thank you. And, and we see sort of the emotional complexity of God throughout the book of Amos and it's sort of coming to a head in this moment. I sort of picture it like if your own dad was a judge and he's been warning you, listen to me, if you commit a crime that deserves punishment and you face me in court, I will convict you. I will do everything in my power to convict you. I'm warning you that if that happens, that will be the result. And we see God, and you can, you can almost see tears in his eyes. And he's saying, listen, it's come to the point where you've committed all these crimes. You're facing me in court. I warned you that I would convict you. And now you're facing up to me, the judge of all the earth, and I'm telling you that the verdict is guilty. And I'm telling you that the punishment is sure. And you're not going to be able to escape it. And it's all because of your pride. Finally, in the passage... Amos brings us to both the cause and the result of this kind of turning away from God with a lack of repentance and with a heart full of pride. And he says that God's patience has run out because the word of God is ignored. It's the symptom and the result Amos chapter 8, verses 11 through 14. Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord God, when I will send a famine on the land, not a famine of bread, nor a thirst for water, but of hearing the words of the Lord. They shall wander from sea to sea and from north to east. They shall run to and fro and seek the word of the Lord, but they shall not find it. In that day, the lovely virgins and the young men shall faint for thirst. Those who swear by the guilt of Samaria and say, as our, your God lives, O Dan, and as the way of Beersheba lives, they shall fall and never rise again. So God is envisioning the result of pride and a lack of repentance. And he's saying, I see a great famine in the land. And immediately the people of Israel are thinking, there will be no food. And God is not saying that there will be no food. God is saying that there will be a famine of the word of God. But here's the interesting thing about what he says next. He says something really peculiar. He says that the people will be running from north to east. Now, that would be a strange thing to say in our day as well. You would say that somebody runs from north to south, or you would say that somebody runs from east to west. You wouldn't say that somebody runs from north to east. But what we're supposed to picture here is the people of Israel who were north of the land of Judah are running north and east. In other words, they're running everywhere except for where the word of God actually is, which is south in Judah. And it's coming out of the mouth of Amos, God's chosen spokesman. 
So they are experiencing a famine of the word of God, not because God is not speaking his word, but because where his word is being spoken, they are refusing to go. Guys, this happens all the time. One of the greatest heartbreaks for me as a pastor is when people leave our church and they say that they're leaving because they disagree with this teaching or that teaching. And I'll sit down with them and I'll warn them that they are on a path toward destruction. They might think that it's something small in God's word, but in my mind, it's not as much about what they're disagreeing with, it's about who they're disagreeing with. Because if you say no to one little part of God's word that is clear and obvious, it opens the door for you to say no to all of it. Because what you're really saying is, I don't trust God. I am my own God. And I've seen it over and over again. People leave the church because of what we're teaching and they go to another church, a church that doesn't teach the word of God. They're all over the cities. They're all over our country. They teach parts of the word of God, but they pick and choose. And I've seen it over and over again. They go to this church for a short time. Then they leave that church and go to another church where the word of God is even more watered down. And then a short time later, they've left the faith completely. Why? They've chosen a famine rather than hearing the words of God. Imagine that you're in like the Irish potato famine there's no potatoes anywhere. And you find out that there's a little town that has potatoes. You would be crazy not to run to that town to get potatoes. But what if that little town was a group of people that you always hated, that you were prejudiced against? Maybe you wouldn't go. The people of Israel are so filled with pride that they don't want the word of God anymore. And they're so filled with prejudice against those southerners, those people from Judah, that they refuse to listen. And they look at this guy. Who's Amos? He's a farmer. He doesn't have a seminary degree. He's a spiritual loser. Why should we listen to him? The Bible has always been this way. It's never been cool to read the Bible. And it's never been cool to believe what the Bible says. But the Bible is where the word of life is found. And if you walk away from what the Bible says, you will starve to death. And when God's patience runs out 
for you, one of the evidences will be that you can no longer hear the word of God. In other words, you sit under the word of God week after week after week after week, and you don't do what it says, and you don't believe it in your heart, and you reject it, and you become your own God, and God says, you can have it your way. You can believe what you want, but there's no freedom there. There's only famine there. And so the people of Israel went into exile. Their lives were destroyed. They lost their country. They lost their identity. But for what purpose? As a warning to us? Yes. But there's a dot, dot, dot at the end of this passage. And that's that. There is a better word for us than the word that Amos had to speak to Israel in his own day. Because Jesus Christ, when he came to the earth, he said that he did not come to condemn the world, but in order that the world might be saved through him. Today is a day of patience. Here's an amazing parallel passage to the one we just read in Amos. It's found in Matthew 27, verses 45 through 46. This is when Jesus was hanging on the cross. It said, Now from the sixth hour, there was darkness over the whole land until the ninth hour. And about the ninth hour, Jesus cried out with a loud voice, saying, Eli, Eli, lima sabachthani. That is, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Now, here's why I say that was a parallel passage. Do you remember in verse 9 of Amos 8 when it said, I will make the sun go down at noon and darken the earth at broad daylight. And then a little bit later, he said, I will make it like the morning for an only sun. Do you see it? The earth went dark at noon when Jesus was on the cross. In broad daylight, if you were standing next to the cross, it would have all the sudden gone dark. And if you were a good student of the Old Testament and you remembered the book of Amos, you would have said, I remember when God said that he was going to do this. And then if you began to connect who Jesus was to what was happening, you might be thinking, this is the only son that God was talking about. You see, it wasn't like the morning for an only son. It was mourning for God's only son. And what was happening on the cross? Jesus cries out, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? For his whole life, when he referred to God, he always referred to him as his father. But in that moment, he trades the personal for the impersonal. Why? Because the patience of God was placed to the side and the anger of God was unleashed full strength 
on Jesus Christ on the cross. The wrath that the people of Israel deserved and the wrath that the people in this church deserve. And God has made this statement in history for all of us to see. Today is a day where we can repent and be heard by God, not because we have been good or don't deserve punishment, but because the punishment that was meant for us was placed on Jesus. He is our substitute. And so today, run to him. Come to him. Don't let the sun go down tonight before you deal with your sin. Because you can either trust Jesus as your substitute or you will experience God's ultimate patience running out. You will stand before him, the judge of all the earth, and he will say, I offered you my son. You said no. And you will go to hell forever. But there's a better word for you. And so give up your sin. Give up your pride. Repent and come to Jesus with me. Let's pray. God, thank you that we live today where we can hear a better word than the word of Amos. That we can hear his warning, but we can hear it in a context where we know, because of what Jesus has done for us on the cross, that we can come to you. And I want to pray for that person who's just so entangled in their sin and so distorted in their mind that they have refused to come to you. God, would you set them free this morning? Would they be able to say, I agree with God's word. I've been the one who's been wrong. God hasn't been the one who's been wrong. I've been the one who's been proud and in sin. And would they come to you and experience the freedom of your grace? And God, for those of us who have been Christians for a long time, and we slip back into pride, we choose pride, we choose not to repent, would you free us once again this morning? Would we hear your warning, turn away from our sin, and enjoy a relationship with you again? Pray this all in Jesus' name. Amen.